Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, there's a setup for us talking about United Technology and its acquisition of Rockwell Collins, $23 billion, the price tag. Joining us now, Doug Rothaker. He is our Bloomberg intelligence expert when it comes to all things uh, aerospace and defense. Uh, Doug, thanks very much for being with me. Uh, maybe you could just explain what this is going to do, first of all, to the industry and the two largest customers, Boeing and Airbus. Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. So, first thing is that this creates the world's largest aerospace supplier, a $40 billion portfolio stretching basically the inside and outside of the aircraft, kind of nose to tail engines, avionics, interiors, communications, etc. So that obviously helps them protect pricing and competitive pressures, you know, both among peers and with Boeing and Airbus. And then the other point I would make is that, you know, we've seen supplier consolidation pick up steam here over the past year. And I suspect this trend, although obviously not to this size, you know, up and down the supply chain will will continue. The supply supply chain is really getting squeezed by Boeing and Airbus from a pricing standpoint. So obviously this is a way that they can uh, combat those challenges with greater scale. Doug, maybe just give us a little insight into how the industry works. Is it possible for a company like United Technologies, let's say post-merger, post-acquisition with Rockwell Collins to be able to go to Boeing and say, look, you know, you want to buy this avionics package and you want to buy this uh, seat upgrade package. Uh, We've got the BE Aerospace or what was formerly BE Aerospace uh, in the portfolio. Oh, and by the way, we'd like to uh, sell you our geared turbofan uh, engines. We'll give you a a discount if you take all three. Right. So I would say not only to Boeing and Airbus, but also to the customers. Remember, they, the, uh, the one key factor with the BE Airspace acquisition is the large exposure to direct consumer, you know, to airline uh, customers. So they can go right to airline customers with, with better pricing, you know, given this greater scale. Uh, and obviously, you know, they're you, know, you would expect them to be able to do the same uh, directly to Boeing and Airbus. So I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. All right. So having said that, maybe just lead us now into what this does if, uh, specifically to United Technologies, because does it really uh, need to be a conglomerate that uh, has an HVAC systems business plus a, a uh, an Otis elevator and escalator business? All right. So I think that'll be the. The biggest question on investors' mind over the next year as this plays out, they expect to close the deal by the third quarter of 2018. And it was a pretty pointed comment they had in the press release announcing the deal that after the close of the of the acquisition, they're going to pursue any and all strategic, uh, you know, uh, uh, opportunities for United Technologies, and I think that was a clear uh, discussion or a point to the the potential for a breakup. Uh, you know, they've talked consistently about how they feel their shares are you know underappreciated, if you will, in the marketplace and undervalued. And so, obviously, being able to split the companies up where you have larger multiples for the industrial uh, peers is obviously a way to be able to do that. So, I think in the near term, that's kind of on the back burner until they uh, you know a focus over the next year. Is going to be paying down a lot of the debt that they're taking on uh, to finance this deal. Um, but I think when you get into mid and late next year, that uh, that will be really a focus 
among the investment community of what you know what this company looks like over the next few years and and I suspect the possibility or the probability, I should say, of them breaking up is, is greater than not at this point. Doug, I beg your pardon. Just rem- just remind me again, which is the higher margin business and which demands the higher multiple? Sure. So they have an Otis elevator business and HVAC business, and both of those uh, peers in those industries command greater multiples than, than what you would see in the aerospace business. So would that embolden management to split off that business because they want to what? Reward they, shareholders for having held those uh, well, they would, companies in the portfolio. Beg your pardon. No problem. They would just want to essentially unlock the value that's basically tied tied down, if you will, right now by being. They're essentially going to be overweight. The aerospace businesses by about sixty percent now. So, if you think about the multiples that could be uh, extracted or, or or seen with uh, you know high cash flow uh, business and high margin businesses that you have with the elevator and HVAC businesses. Um, either with a strategic buyer, uh, excuse me, strategic buyer, or in the public space, uh, you know, would likely be more than what they would realize as a conglomerate. Right. Yeah. The shares of uh, UTX United Technologies are down about three and three quarters of a percent. Shares of Rockwell Collins up uh, three quarters of a percent. Rockwell Collins earlier in the year, I believe it was April, they closed on that deal to buy BE Aerospace. So we're going to see even more consolidation. Who's left? Yeah, I think big deals like this, there's really not many left. But I would say, you know, up and down the supply chain, there will be a concerted effort to gain to gain greater scale. Spirit Aerosystems, although they've kind of walked a little bit back on the discussion, you know, Spirit Aerosystems is Boeing's largest supplier, and uh, up until recently, they even said that they were looking for possible acquisitions in this space. So, uh, um, you know, again, deals of this size probably um, aren't likely, but uh, I would suspect that you would see uh, situations occur um, for the supply chain to be able to gain greater scale and, and, you know, fight the Boeing and Airbus pricing pressure and and aftermarket pressure that they're seeing. Doug, uh, just to give you about 30 seconds or or so, I know that everybody's got a huge backlog for aircraft and we're predicting, you know, we're going to add lots of new uh, airplanes, quieter, faster, all that. This is a cyclical business, isn't it? It is. We're we're 10 years into the airspace cycle right now, and you kind of wonder about the legs that are left. I think based on Boeing and Airbus production rates, you know, we see a few more years of increased production, particularly with the narrow bodies, but we've seen wide-body production come down, uh, particularly with the transition to the the Boeing 777 as they work into their, their 777X program. Um, you know, Airbus A380 right. production is, is being cut. Um, so there's concerns in the wide-body production rates and, you know, about the the legs, if you will, of this aerospace cycle. we got to leave it there. Thanks very much. Doug Rothiker, he is our Bloomberg intelligence expert when it comes to all things aerospace and defense. Now uh, we're scheduled to talk to Tom Hanlon. He is the global investment strategist that has sent private capital management at U.S. Bank, and he joins us from Minneapolis. Tom, thank you for being with us. Maybe you could just start off by, uh, I thought this was an interesting point that you made, that the U.S. consumer appears indifferent to whatever the volatility is, whether it is U.S. politics or geopolitics. American consumers are just going on their merry way. Where do you, What does that imply? Well, good morning, Pam. And uh, yeah, and it's not just U.S. consumers, it's, it's consumers worldwide. But, you know, we, you look at the data and consumers keep on consuming and, and manufacturers keep on manufacturing, no matter the headlines, whether it's 
domestic politics or, or, or geopolitics. And uh, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you look at the market action today, um, you know, we're down a, a little on the S&P, but more on the financials um, than the broad markets. That tells us that uh, the action is, is less to do with, with uh, North Korean news over the weekend and more to do about uh, people's perceptions of the Fed. So where do you come down? I mean, do you buy this uh, notion that the consumer is going to continue uh, to spend and that manufacturing uh, companies are going to continue to make things regardless of uh, what goes on in Washington or in other political capitals? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, just the underlying trends of just the broad economy or, or labor market or uh, uh, you know, globally, not just the United States, but elsewhere, um, it, it's, it's fairly sanguine. I mean, it's not aggressive to the point where central banks are going to tighten uh, aggressively. It's not so weak that, that you're getting uh, a concern about the consumer. And then, you know, you know, the synchronized recovery gets said a lot, but it's more like a, a lack of, of dispersion in, in growth rates around the world. So everybody's low, everybody's slow but positive, and, and that's a, a pretty decent backdrop for kind of all participants. Okay, so if that's the backdrop and that's the position, are you an all-in bull? We have, we have been and we remain um, pro-risk uh, in terms of client portfolios. We, we still tilt uh, towards equities relative to fixed income. And our, our primary uh, uh, places where we look to invest are still the United States, Europe, and Japan, where we, we still have the, the highest confidence about uh, the economic fundamentals. Have you taken any profits lately? No, we haven't. Uh, we haven't made any material changes to our to our outlook. Um, I think our, our diligence and vigilance of, of risks has probably uh, increased uh, based on the geopolitical landscape and, and also domestic politics. Um, but we st- we still remain um, kind of on our trajectory of uh, the narrative that we have, which is uh, pro growth and uh, pro risk assets. So does that mean that you're focusing on technology stocks? What specific industry groups can you share with us? The Nasdaq is up more than nineteen percent this year yeah I mean we're still mostly broad market participants um, uh, you know anything that that benefits from a low inflation um, uh, a fed that's accommodative policy so that's that's still good for for domestic u.s consumption and because of the global growth backdrop um, u.s exporters are still a good place to be as well because and we're seeing that in the manufacturing data well, tell us about the, your view on the dollar, because uh, that has been weakening uh, after a, a run of strength uh, earlier in the year. If the dollar continues to weaken, are you going to see increased commodity prices, but that'll be offset by increased sales overseas? I think that's probably a fair assessment. Um, you know, another uh, uh, sort of backdrop of a, of a weaker dollar that also tends to be good for um for markets, um, you know, it's a good uh, construct for emerging market equities to have a, a, a dollar on a more of a weakening trend than a, than a strengthening trend. And, and uh, you know, the, the dollar, you, know, you see it yeah, today coming off the Labor Day weekend with the news, um, it's actually weaker rather than stronger today. And the yen's not really acting um, uh, terribly uh, volatile today. So, again, that tells us that's more about the Fed and, and people trying to price in uh, whether there's a rate hike between now and year end than anything else. Well, do you believe that there will be a rate hike? By the Federal Reserve this year? Yeah, our base case has been that we, we, we're likely to see one before the end of the year, um, and we just continue to, to, to monitor that. And, and you know, obviously, we have a lot of speakers this week uh, from the Federal Reserve as well to, to watch for. But you haven't seen this wage growth in the United States. Does that temper your enthusiasm? Yeah, it's certainly been stubborn. Uh, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's, it's, it's global, and it, it, there's probably, um, and it's probably bifurcated in different industries. You probably get wage growth um, in some industries where you have um, uh, 
uh, not a lot of uh, supply of labor, and then you know it's offset again in the areas where where you've got uh, kind of surplus of labor. So it kind of comes out in in little wage growth. We still think that we're going to see that. We still think that that in general, um, with positive economic conditions and, and positive consumption, that that wage growth will come. All right. I want to thank you for uh, for joining us. Uh, thanks for giving us uh, your thoughts. You're you're a bull. Can we say that you're a bull, but uh, with caution? Does that make sense? That, that makes sense. All right, good. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Tom Hanlon, he is the global investment strategist at Ascent Private Capital Management at U.S. Bank, uh, joining us from Minneapolis. Well, in addition to uh, immigration, one other topic uh, that has uh, drawn the attention of lawmakers as well as the administration, of course, is North Korea. Joining me now is Dr. Robert Pape. He is the author and a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, and he is the director of Chicago Project on Security and Terrorism. Uh, Dr. Pape, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, You've written that uh, economic sanctions will not work with North Korea. Korea. Tell us a little bit about your reasoning. Um, China is not going to enforce the tight sanctions that would really bite. And the reason is because uh, China does not want the North Korean regime to collapse. If the North regime, uh, North Korean regime collapses, there's a very good chance that U.S. and South Korean troops would rush right into North Korea, possibly up to the border with China. That's exactly the scenario that led China to intervene in the Korean War in the 1950s. This is a vital national security interest to uh, China. And so bullying China, threatening to cut off trade with China, this is not going to work. Um, And so we really need to look for an alternative track because at the moment, Trump's strategy of coercive diplomacy is backfiring. So what is the alternative track, in your opinion? The alternative track is to build on the cooperation among the six parties uh, that worked in the second part of the Bush administration. The best we've gotten, uh, the most we've frozen the North Korean regime's nuclear uh, program was from 2006 to 2009, when the Bush administration, this is no wimpy administration, uh, engaged in six-party talks, uh, which actually had quite a bit of effect. Um, all the way through the end of Bush's uh, uh, presidency. This is something we need to restart. And in fact, we can evolve, we could evolve our current policy of pushing for tough sanctions into a common economic policy on North Korea, common among China, Russia, the United States, South Korea, Japan. This would create a real alliance against North Korea that would have some bite over time. Well, how likely is that, given the current administration and the rhetoric that you've heard not only from the president, but also from uh, the Secretary of Defense? Well, I think what you've seen over the last month is actually the administration um, speaking of two minds. Uh, When you hear Secretary Tillerson and you hear Secretary Mathis, they really are uh, moving more in the direction of deterrence, containment, working with allies. Um, I'm afraid President Trump's rhetoric um, has not been particularly helpful. And in fact, in the last two weeks, um, 
uh, what we've seen is the North Koreans have increased their threat to the United States. It's still far, it's still not, you know, it's not today. Um, but nonetheless, we need an alternative track. And I believe that Secretary Tillerson and uh, Mattis actually um, uh, would uh, are, are seeking such a track. Are they finding any uh, willing partners? Well, um, what we see is that with North Co- with North Korea, notice the partners are pretty obvious. Uh, they're China, they're Russia, they're Japan, and they're South Korea. Um, Secretary Tillerson, that's where he has been. He has been with our partners, uh, working with them. So uh, the the what was really become quite clear now is that the current strategy of uh, heavy-handed coercive diplomacy is simply backfiring. Uh, the continuing a failing strategy is only likely to cause South Korea and Japan to lose confidence in U.S. leadership, which could create more instability in the region. So the alternative is to work with South Korea, Japan, China, uh, again, toward a common economic policy on North Korea. Well, I'm sure it's not uh, lost on either the Chinese leadership or indeed uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin that nuclear weapons, while uh, aimed in a specific direction, you don't necessarily have complete control over uh, such uh, such weaponry. And China and Russia are awfully close to North Korea. Are they not concerned about any fallout from any potential uh, military activity that would hurt them? Uh, I think they they are. Um, in 2012 and 13, I was involved in some talks in Beijing uh, at um, the, the People's Liberation Army National Defense University, uh, where they were openly and explicitly concerned about North Korea's uh, uh, nuclear program. And uh, for m- very much the reasons you suggest, which is um, it is um, um, North Korea's nuclear weapons don't pose simply a threat to the United States, they pose a threat to all of those parties. Um, And in fact, the fragility of the North Korean regime, if if the North Korean regime were to collapse, you have a loose nukes problem, which is going to scare everybody in Beijing, as well as in uh, Tokyo or Seoul. So you have a situation where um, the six parties here really have a tremendous amount in common. Uh, They already are uh, talking with each other. um, And what we, I think, would be very helpful would be to evolve the current set of discussions away from essentially a failed strategy toward a more productive outcome that we could see over the next two or three years really um, uh, providing stability among the key allies that we need if we're ever going to get a grip on the North Korean problem. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Robert Pape is the author and professor of political science at the University of Chicago and director of the Chicago Project on Security and Terrorism. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.